The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. In our house, there is a lot of birthdays at this time of year. So there's a March birthday, an April birthday, a May birthday. And so all of the birthday festivities are are really on my mind in this season. And there's one particular birthday practice that we don't get to experience as much anymore, but it's always, it's one of my, and was one of my favorites. It's, and it's usually for a one-year-old on their birthday. It's the practice of a smash cake. Anybody familiar with this practice? You, you know what this is? Many of you? Okay, I'm seeing nodding heads. Um, the idea of a smash cake is you take the one-year-old on their birthday, you put them in their high chair, and then you take a piece of cake, or in some cases, like their own little cake, and you put it in front of them, and then you back up and just film and see what happens. <laughs> and so the one-year-old looks at it, and they're like, you know, I've never seen such a thing before, you know, and they're looking at it, and then they like take their hands on it like this, and they start squeezing it, and, and then inevitably, they're like, I should taste it. I mean, that's what one-year-olds do. And so then they take this, and then they put it in their mouths, okay? And for our kids, it was the first time in their entire lives that they had tasted something that sugary. And so some of them were like, what is this glorious thing you've been holding back for me? My entire life, I've never tasted something like this, okay? And then after that, I mean, they have no sense of decorum. They don't know what you do. This is the first birthday they've seen, okay? So they take it and they smear it on their faces, okay? They put it in their hair, you know, it's all over them. By the time they're done, some of it's been eaten, you know, some of it's being weared, some of it's been thrown, okay? And, um, and they're not going to take a nap after that for like a week, okay, the amount of sugar that they've had. But I've ha- I have one like, thing against the smash cake uh, process. How come I don't get to do that on my birthday? <laughs> like, why can't, if it's my birthday, I think I should be able to eat cake however I want. Okay, maybe I'm not one anymore, but if I want to smash that cake in between my fingers and smear it all over my face, I should be able to do that, okay? And there's something inside that wants to just take that piece of cake in my hand and eat it like an animal, okay? There's something inside that wants to do that. And some of you are looking at me right now like I'm crazy, okay? But I know deep inside, you have, some of you have that desire as well, okay? But there is in that tension of that desire to like, I wish that this could be a practice for anyone on their birthday to eat cake like that. There is at the same time, there is a little bit of a fear in me at the same time that if I ate my birthday cake like that around you, you'd never come to one of my birthday celebrations again, okay? So I have this tension of both this desire and this fear, and so I don't uh, eat my birthday cake like a one-year-old, okay? Now, I bring all that up because sometimes there are things inside of our, of our lives, inside of our hearts, that there's something that inside we both want to do and are also afraid to do. And we don't know if we're allowed to do. We don't know if we should do it. And sometimes the only thing holding us back from doing that thing that we want to do is for someone to just give us the permission to do it. And so I want to show you something, and it's, it's in reference to mental health, that I think 
so many of us, especially if you have a relationship with God, deep down you're longing to do something, but you're afraid to do it. But there's a scripture here that we're going to study that gives us permission. And if we walk in the permission to do this, this could be the single thing, the single thing holding you back from finding thriving mental health or taking your next step on that journey to finding thriving mental health. I, I want you to see what this pastor said because for some of you, it's gonna set you free. I want you to open with me to Psalm 88. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, open to Psalm 88. Now, as you open there, I, I've, before we jump in, I've got to talk a little bit about um, how the intro to many of the Psalms work. If you look there in your Bible or your Bible app, at the very top of the Psalm, before verse one starts, is a title. In some translations, it's in italics. In some translations, it's in all caps. Um, and then on top of that, some translations have another title or summary in all bold, okay? That part in all bold, the first part, that is something that has been added by the translators. That's not in the original text. That's just a guide for you and me, it's, and it's helpful. You'll find that all throughout Scripture. They'll break sections of the Scripture out with a little title in all bold. That's helpful. That helps us be able to find things we're looking for or uh, find themes that we're looking for. But it's important to note that's been added. The bold title has been added by the translator. It's not originally part of the ancient scripture that we believe is inspired by God. Now, the, underneath the bold part, the part that's in italics or it's in all caps, depending on your translation, that is actually the ancient title in the scripture. That actually is part of the inspired, as we sometimes say, the inspired word of God or the canon. That is actually part of scripture. That is something that was written down that God wanted to preserve for us through all of history in the ancient Hebrew, and then biblical experts translate that part into English. So strictly speaking, if you're reading that psalm and you want to read the part of the psalm that is God's word, you would also read that title. Sometimes that title is very simply, simple. It says who wrote it. Other times there's more detail in that title. In this particular psalm, Psalm 88, there's a lot of, there's a lot of detail in there. And so I want to just start with this title because sometimes it's instructive. And in this case, it's interesting. So let me just read this title of this psalm. It says this, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. To the choir master, according to Mahalath Lianoth, a maskil of Heman, the Ezraite. Now, honestly, we can't go any further because I'm not mature enough to pass over the fact that Heman is the author of this particular psalm. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm not. I wish I could skip over it, but I can't. I thought. Skeletor and He-Man were so busy, but He-Man, you know, multitasked and wrote some psalms in the Bible, apparently, at the same time. 
Unfortunately, I don't mean to crash your hopes. Excuse me, I don't mean to crash your hopes. He did not write this psalm. It was not He-Man. It's actually probably pronounced Haman, which is less fun, but that is in the scripture. Haman is the one who wrote this psalm. Okay, but Haman is actually an important character to know who he is. Haman is referenced, and it's a detail, but when it comes to the psalm he wrote, and um, from my understanding, this is the only psalm we know of specifically from Haman. Haman was one of David's chief singers. So King David, the warrior, poet, king, wrote all kinds of songs and psalms and also set up in his kingdom singers. He set up um, musicians. It's always, always been so important to God's people to sing to the Lord. That is a command in scripture. We're commanded to sing. We're commanded in scripture in the Psalms to do things like cheer and clap. We're commanded to raise our hands. We're commanded to sing out to the Lord. We're commanded to do that. Why? You say, well, I'm not really a musical person. I don't really get into music. Others of you are, no, I love worship music. That's very instinctual for me. That's very intuitive. It doesn't matter whether you're a musical person or not a musical person. Every person of God, every child of God is commanded to sing back before the Lord. He is, God knows music, the way music, it it impacts us, the way music, um, the way he works through singing musical truths. It's like we're proclaiming and even praying them back to the Lord. And it's ultimately for him. We're commanded to write new songs, every generation writing new songs for the Lord. And there may be times where you come in and you're like, wow, this worship set was, uh, this. I love those songs, well, or these ones, I, not as my favorite, why can't we do these songs? Because worship is ultimately not first and foremost for you or for me. It's first and foremost for God. We sing it back to the Lord. And so we're singing these truths at the same time, he knows the impact that it has uh, on our souls, on our lives. And so singing and worship is always a, pr- is a priority for every group of people of God. It's, um, it's something that we set aside time for. And I t- want to take a moment on this because I believe that it does have a role to play in mental health. It has a way of getting through hardened or burdened hearts and proclaiming truths in a very powerful, unique way. Okay, Haman was one of David's chief singers and songwriters. He was a worship leader. But he's also a little bit later after David when it's talking about David's son, Solomon. And it's talking about the extraordinary wisdom of of Solomon that God like miraculously gave Solomon. It says that Solomon even had more wisdom than these guys. And it lists like five guys from Israel's history that were so wise that it would have been astonishing for them to hear that Solomon was even wiser than them. And one of those men that's referenced is Haman. And so Haman was a singer-songwriter for King David, but was also renowned for his wisdom. So you're about to see the the song we have of Haman, and you're going to see not only his incredible ability to write songs for God's people, but also his uh, wisdom that God preserved for us to know for all time, his wisdom being poured out in this song. You follow me? Okay. 
It's written by Haman. It's also said a couple other things. It's also said that it is for the choir master. So that means if this song is for the choir master, the intention is that this song is sung corporately. It's sung by choirs. This is not just one of those psalms that the intention is, hey, if you're off alone, reflecting alone with God, this is for that setting. It's also for that setting. But pay close attention. This would be a song sung by choirs over the people of God. It's corporate. Hang on to that. That's going to end up being significant. The other thing I want you to notice in here is it says this very strange phrase. It says um, in here, according to Mahalath Lianoth. Now you say, as I'm reading it, uh, how would I possibly know what that means? In fact, this is the only time those combination of words are together, not just in Psalms, in the whole Bible. And so scholars puzzle over what this actually means. Some would say um, some of the words uh, in there are talking about chanting. Um, there's a reference, there's kind of a, a link to the ancient Hebrew word for flute. Some people believe that this is a musical term, but another interpretation of this, and I'm not just nerding out here, this is important, I think, for this text. Another interpretation is that word machalath is associated with the word sickness or affliction. And so there is uh, one a preacher, one of the most famous preachers in the last 200 years, is a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. He preached 150 years ago. And his commentary on this particular psalm, he, he defines that, he, he cites an ancient translation of this phrase, and he cites it as being, meaning a mental malady. In other words, the interpretation that Spurgeon picks up for this psalm is that right there in the title, it's a psalm that is talking about mental health. That's one of the interpretations of what that means. I, I say that because I also want to bring up why would Spurgeon, it's very famous, he's still to this day known as the Prince of Preachers, very famous preacher, very influential, incredible sermons that you can still read to this day. Why, why would he side with that interpretation. One of the reasons may be because Charles Spurgeon, it's well-documented, struggled with deep mental health himself. In fact, um, let me just read you some of the things he said about his own mental health. This is Charles Spurgeon. He said, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. He struggled with deep depression. He also said this, and I thought this was really instructive. He also says, we very speedily care for bodily diseases. They are too painful to let us slumber in silence, and they soon urge us to seek a physician or a surgeon for our healing. Oh, if we were as much alive to the more serious wounds of the inner man. This preacher and pastor, in talking about his own mental health and the mental health of, 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 his, uh, of the, 
the people in his congregation, he says, hey, you break your arm, you immediately go to the doctor. But when you're even, what he says is even more serious wounds, he calls it the wounds of the inner man, the wounds of mental health, anxiety, depression, loneliness, those types of things. He says, I wish that we were as urgent in seeking out help for those struggles in the inner, in the inner person. This is a, a psalm that many have throughout history seen as a psalm talking about mental health. Now, I want you to see what he says. It's very helpful for us. Let's pick it up in, in verse 1. O oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Now, we're going to pick up the pace here in a second, but let's just pause here to just see his intro here. He starts with these names of God. O oh Lord, God of my salvation. He starts out with Yahweh, Elohim, my salvation. That's how it reads in the Hebrew. Um, and that in and of itself is starting out this whole psalm with a powerful statement of faith. He then goes on, hear my cry day and night to you. I am crying out to you. This psalm is an expression of faith in these ways. First of all, anytime anyone prays, anyone prays, it's a step of faith that there is a God that hears that. That's the assumption. Now, even more important than believing that there is some force and some God out there that most people do believe, more important is that he models by calling God the names that God has revealed about himself. He's also, it's, a, it's faith that God is who he said that he is. He's saying, oh God, this, I know who you are. You're Yahweh, you're Elohim. I know who you are. You are who you say you are. If God is not a figment of our imagination, if he is a real being, that means that we don't make up who he is. That's fiction. That's imagination. If you're making it up, it's fiction. If he is a real being, we're not saying, this is what I think God is. He's real. Who he is is fixed. We discover who he is. And what we believe is that God wants us to discover who he is, so he's, he's preserved in the scripture, in the Bible, who he is. He's modeling faith that there's a God. More importantly, faith that God is who he says he is. He's faith that God will hear him. Oh God, hear my cry. That I'm not just praying and, and God's not turning away or God's not distant or God's not forgotten about me or God's not too busy. Faith that God hears him and faith that he can actually cry out what's really going on in his heart. That God's not like, whoa, why are you coming to me like that? Because what we're about to see is that um, he's, he's going to be he's pretty raw. Let's pick it up in verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. 
like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. That word selah or, selah or selah is a, a liturgical word. It's a musical term that basically means pause and reflect. And usually in the Psalms, it's there after some profound statement of God and who he is is stated. And it cues to just pause and reflect on that. So maybe that, if they're playing that corporately, maybe it would be a time of just instrumental worship. And the instruction is stop and think about that. But this time, he's saying, look what you've done to me. You're crushing me like all day long. I'm absolutely overwhelmed. Like I, I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm descending to hell. Like I feel like, like I, I, you, have, you have done this, God. And then he's like, let's pause and reflect on that. It's pretty honest. I mean, is it okay to do that? Is Haman about to get struck by lightning? It's pretty forthright, Haman. Let's keep reading. Let's, let's just read through the rest of the psalm. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. In your steadfast love declared in the grave. Is is your steadfast love declared in the grave or or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The end. You know, it's interesting. Uniquely, this psalm does not end redemptively. And it's, it's rare because almost every psalm ends, but I will choose to praise the Lord. But blessed be God, whose love endures forever. But then I looked and, and I saw your favor upon me. Then I discovered, I, I almost fell apart, 
but then you drew near me and your right hand was upon me. I mean, it's always something like that at the end. But this psalm, and I'm in darkness. Period. I mean, Kinney, is he allowed to do that? You know, what's interesting about this last section from verse 8 to verse 18, it has a phrase that's like bookending it. It's a word that bookends the beginning and bookends the end of that section. He says, my companions have shunned me. And then at the end, he says, you know, my friends have shunned me and now uh, darkness is my companion. And that's really important in this text and it's a really beautiful description of a companion. This is what the Hebrew is there. The Hebrew is, it's actually a compound of two words. It's the word for companion that we're translating companion. It's the pronoun like I or my, and then the other word is yada. And yada is the Hebrew word which means to know. But it's a very particular usage of the word to know. It is in reference to deep intimacy. So it's in the way that maybe God knows us. It could be in the way that a husband and a wife um, sexually know each other. In fact, sometimes that's a euphemism for sex. It's like says, and beginning of Genesis says, Adam knew his wife Eve. It's talking about intimacy. It's that, it's that word yada, to know. It can also be for friends, friendships, deeply, deeply know each other. Like in this, in this verse, it's not just like my acquaintances, the people I know, uh, like just kind of casually know there is a deep intimacy in what it's describing about his companions. He's saying, in other words, that word, if you're really more woodenly to translate it, it would be like my knowers, the ones who actually know me, not just know my name, they actually know me, and those people who deeply actually know me, they have shunned me, they have gone away from me, they have left me behind, and so now I feel like the only thing that knows me is darkness. That's how he's, he's bookending that, but it puts this deep emphasis on one of the things he's suffering the most, the most anguish is coming from the fact that he is, those who deeply know him are gone. He, they are not around him anymore. That is such a, an important aspect of our mental health. And when we don't have those people in our lives that deeply know us, that's a recipe for struggling when it comes to mental health. That's one of the things as he's talking about his anguish, this man in the psalm. He's talking about his anguish, and it sounds like that he struggled, struggled with for much of his life. He says, from my youth. The anguish that he's walking through is accentuated by the fact that he doesn't have people around him that deeply know him richly. I mean, is, is it okay? Let me just start with this question. Is it okay for Haman to say these things to God. Can he write this? I mean, he's like kind of accusing God of things. Like, this is pretty raw. Is it okay? Well, apparently God thought it should go in the Bible. Not only is it okay, but God has 
preserved it for generations meticulously. Not only did God preserve this, but he preserved who wrote it, a man of great wisdom. This is not like the junior songwriter that you know, was just a new follower of God. Renowned with wisdom, he wrote this. And so there's something very instructive for us in this. And furthermore, did you notice that it's not just in God's word, it's not just written by someone renowned by their wisdom. This was to be sung by a choir. That might be a depressing Sunday, okay? You know, the whole choir, <laughs> like man. Maybe that's why they only put one of Haman, only one of Haman's in there, because they got, they got a little dark, Haman, okay? No, but this was to be sung in a corporate setting. What does that do? That gives permission for this psalm to be sung, to be talked about, to be expressed, not just in the quiet privacy alone with God. Yes, that, but also openly and honestly as a community. Do you see this? Okay, what is this psalm giving you and me permission to do? Permission to be honest. When it comes to mental health, it's permission to be honest. Something that probably deep down we want to do. We want to be honest where we're at. It's actually keeping the, that locked inside is hard. It's trying to boil out. We want to be honest, but we're afraid to be honest. But the scripture, God is saying to his people from generation to generation, look at this by one of the leaders in Israel Preserve for all time, someone of deep wisdom, permission to be honest. Honest in, a multi, in multiple ways. For starters, good mental health requires, it requires honesty with God. You have to have honesty with God. Good mental health requires honesty with God. Haman took this and, and prayed this before God. And there's sometimes where you might have things that you want to say to God you're angry about, maybe, you're discouraged about, you're confused about, you're weary about. We have those things, and we want to say them to God, but maybe a well-placed caution we have is maybe pushed too far. And so we say, well, look, I can't say that to God. I can't tell God that I'm angry. I can't vent out. I mean, I have a fear of the Lord. I have a reverence for the Lord. I have an awe for the Lord. I'm awestruck by who God is. And so like, I'm not just gonna vent what I think about to the Lord. Haman did. And you know what? It was a great act of faith. It was faith that there is a, every time you pray, it's faith that there's a God. Every time you pray, it's faith when you're praying to him and you're expressing openly and honestly to him, you're, you're praying in faith that he is who he said he is. A father who loves you more than you could imagine, who's purchased your soul by the sacrifice of Jesus and pours his grace over you. 
By the way, if you have all that in your heart, do you think God is unaware? Well, I can't say it to God. Because then God might be like, wait, that's what you've been thinking this whole time? Like, whoa, buddy, simmer down. He already knows. So by taking that anger, those doubts, that confusion, that grief, that discouragement, and then doing the most productive thing you could do, it, do with it, being take it to God, you're adding faith to the, the hurt that's already there. You're saying, God, you know what's in my heart. Here it is at full blast before you. And you know, you're, you're basically doing what Haman did. God, Yahweh Elohim, my salvation. I need your help because I'm struggling with you. Boy, don't you think the enemy would rather you think you have to figure it out by yourself first and clean yourself up before you could pray? No, you can't go to the healer with that. You heal on your own and then go to God. That's a lie, Christian. Permission to be honest with God. In fact, good mental health requires that you be honest with God. Second thing, good mental health requires that you be honest with others. I mean, look how this psalm is set up. Don't you imagine when they sang this song together, it would draw out conversation among them that was intended to create a corporate conversation about this type of inner anguish. Not to mention that that's embedded into the conversation. So as they're singing together, that they're being shunned by those who know them. And they're singing this together and they look over and they see some of their loved ones with a tear going down their face. It's a cue. I don't want to leave but my friends, my, those I love that are walking through this. It's a cue embedded in this psalm that mental health is a community conversation. It's something we, we do together. It's something we, act, we, we actively need. What you need, you need your knowers. You need not just people, people that you know on social media. It's not just old friends that are not active in your life right now. Not just people that you work with. You actually need people who deeply and intimately know you. That is how you are wired, Christian. That's how you're wired. In fact, this upcoming um, week, one of the, pod, the podcasts that we're going to release this week on mental health is about loneliness. And in it, Rebecca brings out these different spheres of relationships. We have this public sphere. We have the social sphere. But eventually, we have this very intimate sphere. And it takes time. It takes hours of investment to build the trust so that we can have people who deeply know us. That is absolutely required to have thriving mental health is that you have knowers in your life. The problem is we don't have as a routine and as a practice the perpetual investment of hours in those relationships. So when we get to a crisis, a crisis of loneliness, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, we haven't built those intimate friendships that can support us in that time. We don't know who to be honest with. And at that point, we're too weak, insecure, burdened to actually go create them. Christian, 
have as a part of your rhythm the perpetual pursuit of godly, for you ladies, godly women in your life, for you men, godly men in your life that you can trust to journey with and, have the, and that they can truly and deeply know you. Here's the third thing. Good mental health requires honesty with yourself. This is not obvious. Because sometimes, Christian, it's hard to admit that you're struggling. But how can you be honest with God or someone else if you're not being honest with yourself? It's too humbling to admit it to yourself. You have a self-image of, I just pull myself up from the bootstraps. I don't need anything from anybody. That's not how God wired you. Be honest with yourself. And sometimes, Christian, like the wisdom from Haman in this psalm, you're struggling and you can't, in the season you're in, you can't just tie it in a nice, neat bow. The Christian platitudes, if you're being honest, you know them, but they're not helping. And if you're honest, you're not in the space where you're saying, yeah, but I just trust God. You're not in the space where you're saying, fine, thank you, how are you? You're not in that space with, but I'm so blessed. But all things work together for good. But trust in God with all your heart and lean not to your understanding. Sometimes you're just not in that place and you know all of the phrases, you know all the verses and you're just not in that space. Be honest with yourself so you can be honest with God and honest with others. Because if you don't have that, if you're not honest with yourself, if you're not humbling yourself, then you can't enter into those spaces. What Haman did is as much as he was struggling with God, day by day, year by year, he continued to go back to God in faith that God was the one that was healing. He didn't quit. Some of you Christians have quit going back to God. Don't quit. Keep on going in, in honesty with yourself because you need, you need the Lord. Let me give you two practices here practically. Let's, let's not just know this. What are the things to do? Here's the first one. The first one is this, Christian, I want to challenge you on your relationship to your church. Here's what the church is by definition. It is not a place where you just get content. It's not just a place where you hear worship music. You can get all of that on YouTube. A church is, this is how the scripture defines it, a community a family, a body. Whether you want it or not, like it or not, if you are a Christian, you are a part of something. What it means to be a part of something is you are a part of that community. There's some of you that maybe your, your thought about church is, well, I, I'm a part of a church because that's the church I attended the last time I attended. That's not what the scripture's intention for you is, Christian. That's not how you're wired to thrive spiritually. For some, it's, I belong to a church because I attend regularly. Honestly, that's not even the definition of it according to the scripture. That's important. 
But to belong to a church is to be part of the body, part of the family. It's where you have relationships, where you are known and you know others, where you're serving others and being served by others. It's you're a part of that body. And so Christian, I want to challenge you on your relationship with church. And maybe for some of you, maybe over the last few years through the pandemic, it changed your relationship with your church. It's also not coincidentally one of the seasons of the greatest mental health struggle in our society in recent history because you were not meant for isolation. If you are, if you are a Christian, you, the scripture designed for you to be a part of a church. Yes, listen to sermons and worship music. Yes, come regularly, but more than that, become part of the body. And if you're not a part of the body, if you're not on a serving team where you're getting to know people or in a small group where you're getting to know people or in a men's group or a women's group, take steps to not just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. Now is the time. You have to be surrounded by Christian relationships where there are people you deeply know and they deeply know you. It's vital to thriving spiritually in your mental health. You say, how do I take that step? If you go to the City Rev app, the very first page, scroll down, you can join a group, you can join a serving team. If you say, I hate apps and have none on my phone, okay, well then you can go uh, to the cityrev.org website and you can sign up on the website. You say, I hate the internet, don't own a computer. Okay, you can grab that little card in front of you and you can check, hey, someone call me. I would love to get involved on a serving team or a group. We, any, we have multiple avenues for you to find the right team and the right group that you can get involved in. Here's the second practice. Christian, you have to have daily space in your life where you're getting alone and being honest with God. Not multitasking and fitting that in. Carving out time. You can't thrive spiritually if you're filling your mind with all these other things but the word of God and the presence of God. Christians, set aside that time. Say no to something else. You say, I'm so busy. Of course you're busy. Everyone's busy. But what you also know is you make time for what's important. Say no to something else to carve out that time. For generations, believers have found the best time for that to be first thing in the morning, which means probably turning the TV off sooner, going to bed sooner, and pursuing that first thing in the morning before anything else. And by the way, cutting back on whatever it is you're streaming or watching probably is also going to help mental health for other reasons as well. Carve out the time, Christian, so that that's where you explore becoming honest with yourself and honest with God. Haman, God preserves these words of Haman so we know that we have permission. One last thing as we wrap up. Do you know what the actual the Hebrew says in, the, in that beginning? You know where he says, uh, Lord God of my salvation. Do you remember the Hebrew word for salvation? It actually reads in the Hebrew, Yahweh Elohim my Yeshua. That's how he starts it off. Do you know why you can put away your fears and be honest? 
because Yeshua is your salvation, not your performance, not your religion, not your spiritual strength. If it was something that you did, if it's your spiritual maturity that saves you, then you don't need a savior, you're your own savior. But everyone needs a savior, that's what the gospel says. And we have Yeshua, we have Jesus as our savior. He saves us and washes clean. So as a gospel community, we should have the most permission to be honest about where we're not strong. Because the, really the only thing spiritually impressive about us is what Jesus accomplished for us. You have permission to be honest because of what Jesus has done for you. Some of you, your action step is to run to the healer. Run to Yahweh Elohim Yeshua. Run to your Father God today and to just receive healing, begin the process of receiving healing. He may also, as part of that process, bring you into intimate relationship with others. Maybe, maybe one of your knowers is a therapist. It's gonna bring you into those, that relationship, but start today by running to the one who knows you more than anyone, your Father. Can we just take a moment and pray? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Some of you have been striving and running all on your own. You've been trying to be religious enough, be churchy enough, be Christian enough. Just stop. You have a savior. He saved you. It's, do you realize it's not about being religious. It's about having a savior that washed your sins away and placed his perfect righteousness on you. That's how God treats you. Run to Jesus today, please. Some of you, it's for the first time. Quit striving to be saved. Quit trying to be Christian enough or religious enough to be saved. Receive the only thing that can save you. It's the work of your Savior, Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to receive that today. If that's you, I want you to silently pray this right there in your seat. Just pray this to God. Say, Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. I'm done trying to save myself. I surrender to what you accomplished through your death and resurrection. I'm going to follow you with my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer for the first time, if you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, please let us know so we can celebrate with you. You can do that by going to cityrev.org faith. If you're online, just grab your phone, go to cityrev.org faith. It's gonna ask you some questions so we can mail you a Bible and reach out and celebrate with you. If you're here, you can do that as well on your phone or you can grab that Get Connected card um, in front of you and take that with you to guest services. We'll put a Bible in your hands today. Church, we're gonna close with this song. We're gonna sing how we have the freedom to run to the Father. Would you stand with me as we sing this together? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. 
If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.